Yeah, I am not super prepared <laughs> actually I'm more prepared than other episodes in that I have experienced all of the homework <laughs> which is not always true hello and welcome to did you do your homework pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, library manager, and once again, fire emblem battle tactician extraordinaire. Mm. I am joined, as always, by my co-host. I am Pete Romberg, and I have finally made my way out of Hades, although I have not yet made it past Hades himself in the video game. Hades. I so I have seen the extremely horny fan art for Hades. I think that I would hate playing this game. Have we talked about this before? This sounds like a conversation we've had before. We did. It was one of my stuck in my heads um a few episodes ago, but literally just this okay. weekend I made it out of the the final level of of the underworld and when you get to the surface world, you have to fight Hades himself and man, I cannot get past him at the moment. Um yeah, it's a button-mashing fighting game, so your mileage may vary there. You would love all the interpersonal stuff. And you can decorate, you yeah. know, the underworld, so there's a decorating money-based... You know, you earn money to decorate stuff, which everyone enjoys. But I feel like the actual gameplay would not necessarily be your favorite. Yeah, Bill had to explain to me what a roguelike is. This I've definitely told you. Yes. And, yeah sounds like i would hate it etc cetera, etc cetera. i'm just enjoying other people's very horny fan art <laughs> uh you should get bill to play it and just not pay attention during like the fighting stuff and just only focus in on during the the talking bits yeah he will probably play it um and he can just report back to me <laughs> getting back to the business at hand we are here today to talk about modern adaptations of classic literature a little bit later, we are going to get into some cinematic interpretations of uh, literature from the early, late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. Unfortunately, both. Uh, there's no okay. easy. There's no easy way to just say late 19th century. We're we're sort of spanning, spanning that 1800 to 1900 divide. That means that I'm right no matter what I say. Yes. Um, but before that, we are going to address what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, so, Pete, why don't you tell our listeners what piece of pop culture or media uh, is stuck in your brain meat? In my brain meat? That, yeah. <laughs> that, that threw me. I did not think you were going there. Um, I didn't either until I said it. That's where we're at today. <laughs> uh, the brain meat has been properly minced before this episode. Um, so this being the summer of COVID, you either got good into exercise or you fell off your exercise habits. And I was the latter. I fell off my exercise habits real bad this summer. And I am trying to get back into them now. Normally during this time of year, I would be going to the gym and I would be running on a treadmill because I really like running on a treadmill because I'm weird. Um, 
I'm not going to a gym, I don't have a treadmill, so what I've done is I've set up my stationary bike inside. Unlike riding a, uh, running on a treadmill, I hate riding on a stationary bike, so I need things to keep me entertained. Um, I need to be watching shows or movies that are I'm just zeroed in on and lose track of time. And uh, luckily, I put off watching ESPN's The Last Dance until now, and I have just been crushing that while riding my stationary bike. Um, the Last Dance is about the uh, it's about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. Um, it specifically kind of is structured around the 97-98 Bulls repeat three-peat season, but it looks at the entire history of, like, Jordan with the Bulls. Um, I'm really enjoying it as someone born and raised in Chicagoland area. Man, does this take me back. Man, am I getting some good nostalgia vibes. Uh, also learning a lot, like, that Michael Jordan is maybe the pettiest person in the world, and he channels that pettiness <laughs> into being the greatest basketball player of all time, uh, which is something truly incredible. Is this one of the, like, 30 for 30? No, this is its own thing. It's... It is okay. 10 episodes. Um, I don't know what words are. Yeah, uh, it, it is not a 30 <laughs> for it is not a 30 for 30 documentary. Uh, it is its own documentary okay. series. It aired back in April and May of this year. Um, and it's a 10 episode uh, based on its tagline documentary event, uh, including never before used footage of the 97 98 Bulls season. Um they they have a ton of docu of of interviews with uh former players coaches people in the sports world uh former presidents uh etc et uh now and they also have a ton of archival footage from you know back then and obviously the entire show is structured around the 97 98 bulls when they're going for their repeat repeat but it's sort of set up so it's like you got the episode that's kind of about Scotty and the episode that's about like Jordan's early years and you know, the episode that's about the 93 season, um, and so on. Okay. If if you're missing some basketball and you want to watch, you know, and, and you're interested not, in this, go for but it. But I'm happy for you. <laughs> right. I know, I know baseball is your uh, sport to mourn of choice. I'm so sad. <laughs> have I talked about Brockmeyer on this show yet? No, I don't think you have. Okay. Um... So I don't really, I don't truly have a stuck in my head this week. Um, I have been incredibly, it has been incredibly hard for me to focus on like anything and the stuff that I've been watching. Like I've, I've watched a handful of great movies, not I've watched a handful of good movies, but they're, they've kind of been in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about this and there really isn't anything that I've experienced in like the last couple weeks that I'm like, this is the thing. Um, but Brockmire, <laughs> I was talking about it with my family last night because it rings very, very deep in both my and my husband's souls. Um, it is about Hank Azaria who plays a, baseball sports announcer and in the first episode has a meltdown on Mike because he catches his wife cheating on him. Mm. So he gets fired from the major leagues and then like 10 years later resurfaces and takes a job as like some minor Pennsylvania coal mining town baseball team announcer owned by Amanda Pete. Um, Amanda Pete. Just, that is a name I have yes. not heard in a long time. 
right? So he has hideous substance abuse issues, has the best deadpan sense of humor ever. It is four seasons of like 10 to 12, 10 to 12 half hour episodes each. Um, the second season is a little rough. The third season is perfect television. Hmm. Uh, and it spoke to my baseball loving soul. Uh-huh. Did, did you watch uh, this uh, during during the past eight months? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I was alternating laughing hysterically and also weeping because I miss baseball so much. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, I have not gotten a chance to watch it yet because it's on Apple TV, but I'm hearing very good things about Ted Lasso, which does seem like a, a sports show that I would really enjoy. Um, mostly because it's also very British. Heard, I have only heard it in the context of like people have said it's good. I have no idea what it is or so, what it is about. Do you remember a couple of years ago there was a... Apparently it was an ad for something, but I could not tell you what it was an ad for. But the shtick was it it was a American football coach who got hired to coach a British soccer team. No. Okay, I will send you that YouTube link later. It's very it, it is very funny because it's a classic American football coach who's like, all right, we're going to go out there. We're going to win or lose or tie. Oh, you can tie in this game. My job just got a whole lot easier. Uh, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, okay. So, fish out of water story, uh, soccer, uh, you know, British stuff. Uh, Wait, it, so did they turn this commercial into a they, full TV show? They did. Um, and it's with the same guy who is a famous comedian person. Uh, I think uh, Jason Sudeikis is the the guy who plays Ted Lasso, the American football coach. Um. I, I've heard it referred to as like it feels like a Michael Schur show, even though it isn't done by him in the sense that like it's very kind. It, it treats its characters kindly, uh, and it's kind mm -hmm. of about the the relationships between them all and everything, um, while also being a fish out of water kind of <laughs> uh, sports comedy. Uh, but unfortunately, yes. it's on Apple Plus or Apple TV, so uh, oh, well, <laughs> yep. So I'm never gonna see it. Uh we are going to take a quick break, a quick recess, if you will. And when we come back, we are going to talk about some adaptations of modern classic literature. See you in a bit. So today, uh, Pete and I have picked a couple of recent adaptations of um, literature that I think can comfortably be called classics. Um, we are going to be looking at the 2020 Netflix adaptation of Rebecca, originally a novel written in 1938 by Daphne du uh, we are going to be talking about uh, Greta Gerwig's 2008 
2018? This will shock you. It's 2019. I know that was 10 years oh, ago. Almost, but <laughs> I was going to say, I almost I almost said 2019. And then I was like, it has to have. Has to be older than right. That. T- t- um, 2020 is 10 years long, ergo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is time? Um, yeah, but it is a uh, 2019 film by Greta Gerwig based on the novel of the same name by Louisa May Alcott, written in 1868. Some, or, yeah, 1868 and 1869. Um, and then we are also going to touch on. The Haunting of Bly Manor, the 2020 Netflix sequel to The Haunting of Hill House, based extremely loosely on Turn of the Screw, a short novel written by Henry James that came out in 1898. So we have literature spanning the late 1900s into the early 20th century. Uh, and a cluster of adaptations that have all come out in the last year or two. Uh, for the purposes of introducing our material, um, you should introduce Rebecca because I feel like you have a very strong take that I want to hear on Rebecca. Okay. Uh, yeah. So Rebecca, twenty twenty, starring Lily James, Army Hammer, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, directed by Ben Wheatley, written by Jane Goldman and Joe Shrapnel, which is the best last name ever. <laughs> I, I, that's a real last name. That's amazing. Um, is the story of a young uh, young lady who is never properly named uh, in the narrative, who meets a widower played by Army Hammer in Monte Carlo. She is there working as a lady's maid, uh, and he is a young, rich, handsome widower who sweeps her off her feet, uh, marries her after two weeks, and brings her to his ancestral home of Manderley, uh, where she is confronted by the fact that she may have bitten off more than she could chew between the specter of... uh, What's his name? See, he he gets a name, and I don't even care what it is. Maxime? Maxim de Winter. Yes. Uh, the late, the late Mrs. De Winter, um, and the uh, spooky housekeeper Mrs. Danvers, uh, who is kind of in conflict with the new Mrs. De Winter at every turn. Um, things coalesce at a fancy dress party where Mrs. Danvers coerce or not coerces but tricks, tricks mm-hmm. mrs de winter into wearing a costume formally worn by the late mrs de winter which sends maxim into a tailspin uh we find out shortly thereafter that it's because the late mrs de winter also known as rebecca i don't know why i'm not just saying rebecca That's her there name. is like um, mrs de winter which is the new wife or the second mrs de winter and then there's rebecca yeah so we have been led to believe that the shadow she is casting over Manderley is because she was just so beautiful and kind and perfect and how could the new mrs de winter ever fill her shoes um and we find out that the truth is that she was a horrible conniving terrible woman uh who was sneaking around on maxim um and he uh he did a murder um <laughs> to get out from under her thumb 
Um, and we, we, there's some drama about, oh, was she pregnant? And that's why he killed her. No, she had cancer. So then there's some question about like, did she manipulate him into killing her? Cause she didn't want to commit suicide. I don't know. I stopped caring <laughs> by the, by the time we got to the courtroom, I was like, wow, I don't care about this anymore. Um, the movie resolves they by Mrs. De Winter firing Mrs. Danvers, who in a fit of revenge burns Manderley to the ground, freeing Maxim and Mrs. De Winter to travel the world uh, and make new lives for themselves. A a much happier ending than the uh, 1940 Alfred Hitchcock adaptation of the same book, which simply ends with uh, Manderley on fire. I think that's where the book ends, yeah, too. Yeah, so this movie tacks on a happy ending where they're like, they're in Cairo enjoying their freedom, which, no thank you. Which was very counter to what I thought the theme of the source material might have been. Okay, so here, this is a very step-by-step, until we get to the end, I, I think it is a very like faithful adaptation of the events of the book. Yes, it is also so boring I died. Yes. Uh, my take on this was it's very pretty. It's gorgeously it's not- shot. It's lusciously shot. Army Hammer is an incredibly attractive person, and so is Lily Collins. Um, James. Uh, Lily James. Sorry, I knew as soon as I said Lily Collins I had done something <laughs> wrong. Uh, um, and uh, Kristen Scott Thomas is incredible. There was no chemistry, and I was very bored. But see, and I I don't even think it looked that good. Like, my, if you are going to make a historical drama, the clothing and costuming has to be on point. And I did not think the clothes were very good. Mm, I, I didn't was... think Lily James's wardrobe fit that well. I didn't think that the clothing was very impressive. That very dramatic reveal of her red costume dress left me very cold. I, I will say, I focused far less on the costumes than on the general cinematography set um design army hammer etc um (laughs) (laughs) so i i take your point uh that that the costumes probably could have been better i i like the color palette i thought it was very clever to do monte carlo all in yellows and then mandalay all in like blues and such well and here is where we get to the beginning of my proposal so I commented on Twitter. You're already married. Netflix should let me produce a remake of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is my vision for this movie. I think we should have opened in Manderley. Like we kind of open in a dream sequence, but I think that the movie should have started with Mrs. DeWinter and Maxim already married in Manderley. So we could all appreciate the sort of gloom and like gothic visuals and the like muted blues and greens and i think we should have done monte carlo in flashback Mm -hmm. where we could contrast the like bright sunny um yellows and brighter colors and like the time when we were happy and you know just falling in love and then you know cut back and forth between that and being sad and depressed in Manderley. Also, this movie needed way more literal ghosts. I thought that I really thought 
that this was like a ghost story. And I think that there's a way to tell the story where even if the ghost is only real to Mrs. DeWinter, she has to reckon with like the, this haunting aspect of Rebecca, which this movie kind of starts to do, but never fully commits to it. I think that Rebecca needs to be more of a spectral character rather than just a story people are telling because the impact, I mean, we're, we're supposed to believe that Mrs. DeWinter gets so upset by how inferior she feels to this dead woman that for a moment she could potentially be convinced to commit suicide. And I never felt that from the movie. Like, yes. Rebecca never felt like enough of a presence in the house. And I, I think that do, playing more with, like, the perception of her being not an, like, she doesn't need, it doesn't need to be an actual, like, there is a ghost in this house, but she needed to be more real to Mrs. DeWinter. So I, like... Uh, two things one which will segue very nicely into our next topic is you want you wanted this to have done, been done by mike flanagan um because your your analysis of we need more actual ghosts and we need to be playing with chronology is literally the mike flanagan calling card based on the haunting of hill house and the haunting of bly manor um i fully tweeted i fully tweeted before i watched this movie that it was too bad that Netflix made this movie because it meant that the third season of The Haunting of couldn't be The Haunting of Manderley. Right, and I, I'm sure that if, so. if he had done The Haunting of Manderley, it would have been very much what you were talking about, playing with chronology. It would have been set in the modern era or maybe the swing in 70s or something. Who but knows? I don't think it needed to be. I don't, like, I, I don't think this movie needed needs like the full Mike Flanagan treatment. I just think that we need to feel the presence of Rebecca more than we did. So my, my other take, or my other comment here is that this hues very closely to the source material where there are no ghosts um which i i would have sworn i would have sworn on a bible that this was a, like an actual ghost story. <laughs> right right uh no this is the ghosts of the past not uh actual ghosts um but the yeah. i guess my my problem with this and you were talking about like we we, the audience, are expected to believe that the second Mrs. DeWinter is driven to the point of near suicide by how she cannot fill Rebecca's shoes. Um, that makes a lot more sense in the Alfred Hitchcock version, where Laurence Olivier, who plays Maxime DeWinter, is a toolbox the whole way through and is just horrible to her. Um, Army Hammer is a very likable and charismatic guy. And while there are scenes where he's horrible to her, there are also scenes where he's very lovely to her. And I like it. I was getting emotional whiplash in terms of like what he was doing and what he was feeling. Um, and, and it, it never landed. Cause it's like, wait, you seemed like you loved her two scenes ago and now you are not talking to her and treating her like garbage. And then two scenes later, you're back to loving her. Like you need to either be full on, you know, uh, sociopathically uh, bad to her from the get-go or, uh, you know, actually having a conversation with the woman that you married about your past wife who quote-unquote died and or, like, I'm okay if you don't tell her that you murdered her, but, like, having a conversation would solve problems. This is this is one of those shows and it or movies and it drives me up the wall where it's like, if two characters talk to each other like human beings, all the problems would be solved. Also, if the, well, if they had fired Mrs. Danvers uh, the first time, like I was shouting at the screen for them to do, all the problems would have been oh, solved. Full on. 
Um, yeah, I also felt like we needed a scene. So in in Jane Eyre, which we watched recently, mm-hmm. Jane has a scene with uh, what is that? What is the character's name? You were asking the wrong Judy person. Dench. Judy Dench. She has a scene with Judy Dench, the housekeeper, who is like kind of giving her a warning, like men like um, like Michael Fassbender, like Michael Fassbender, um, Rochester. Men like Rochester are not accustomed to marrying their governesses, and the way that she says it, like the implication is they're used to banging them and then turning them out on the street. Yeah, which is almost the scene that we get with um lily james before she becomes madame de winter and the woman that she is accompanying in europe (laughs) who i love for being just the most petty oh she was great but i i needed i needed more commitment because what we get is sort of haphazard like you're making a mistake little lady and i needed it to be more foreboding mm. which i think would have helped your point like if if we'd had more of a like dun 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 is this a good idea because the thing is that i i think that this movie doesn't want to commit to the idea of army hammer as a bad guy yes that is 100 like, true and that's 100 part of the problem Right, because so then you don't really believe it when you're like, oh no, he did a murder. Like, there's never a point where we're sort of afraid of him. Well, and, and also, oh, go ahead. Like, we, we get too much of the, like, we're in love on a sun-washed beach. So, I, I, which I think ends up undercutting the tension later on in the movie, because our first impression of their relationship is this sort of happy idyllic um, whirlwind love story rather than starting us with a sense of dread, which I think the dream sequence at the beginning was supposed to do, but didn't. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, and similarly uh, when uh, army hammer then goes from being like a loving fiance to a cold, weird maniac, it's like, where is this coming from? Um, again, not so part of the problem of this movie is that it is a faithful adaptation of the book, but that already existed in the Academy Award winning film Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock, uh, which was also a faithful adaptation of the book. This movie really brought nothing new to what Hitchcock did. Like, you know, Martha, if you had produced it and it was playing with the chronology and it did bring an actual ghost or all the rest of it. Ooh, that's something new and different. And Hitchcock didn't do that. This is just like, I don't know, we got color now and we got Army Hammer instead of Laurence Olivier and uh, uh, let's just do it again and we'll tack on a happier ending and be a little more um, open about the possible pregnancy because uh, we couldn't quite do that during the, the Hayes Code era. Um, Which also, vis-a-vis that ending, how dare they? <laughs> right. Have they never read... A piece of gothic romance. <laughs> right, yes. But, and again, that goes back to the thing of just like, Army Hammer can't be a bad guy, so we're going to neuter that idea. The movie has to end happy, so we're going to neuter the entire point of the book. Um, But like, yeah, it's like, this, this movie, this book was already adapted. It was adapted very well. You're doing a remake 
you're not doing a remake of the of the adaptation, but you're adapting the book in such a way that you might as well be. And you're bringing nothing new to the table of worth. So I don't know what we're doing here. On that note, I think we should move on to an adaptation that does bring something new to the work, uh, which is good because Little Women's been adapted approximately 76 times. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Um... I guess I could, we, we, we all sort of mutually assigned these three together, but I will take Little Women, the 2019 um, film by Greta Gerwig, uh, directed and written by Greta Gerwig, for which she won some Oscars. This is where you're supposed to back me up. Here we go. Um, she won, oh, only one for Best Costume Design? I was going to say, I can't uh, back you up because I don't actually think she won she, very many Oscars. No, that's right. She was nominated for picture. Uh, Ronan got a, a nom for actress. Uh, Pew got a, a nom for supporting actress. Adapted screenplay, which she was kind of robbed from, but probably someone good won that because uh, it was a good year for the Oscars. Uh, and and they won Best Costume Design. Um, yeah, so this is the uh, Greta Gerwig film uh, starring Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, uh, Laura Dern, Timothy Chalamet. Uh, I forgot Meryl Streep was in Timothy? this. Yes, Tim Chan. Timothy. <laughs> uh, Paul Atreides himself. Um, Tracy Letts is in this. Uh, Chris Cooper. I forgot he was in it, but he's so good. And most importantly and humorously, Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I was going to say that. Um, I did. Yeah. Uh, this is a very... So I have never read Little Women. I have seen zero adaptations of Little Women before this, and this was easily one of my favorite movies of 2019. Um, sadly, also one of the last movies I saw in theaters. You're likely in the same boat. Um, it tells the story of the March sisters, Joe, Meg, Amy, Beth, uh, as they're growing up during the Civil War era in, I'm going to go New England, probably Massachusetts, um, as they're younger. And then also uh, Joe, Meg, and Amy as they're older. Um, spoiler, something happens to Beth. Um, Everyone, listen. <laughs> listen, this book came out in two, in 1867. Uh, so it's, it's just about their lives and the life of uh, them and their uh, rich neighbor family, uh, played by Timothy Chalamet, uh, Lori, um, who ends up marrying... Uh, uh, Amy. Amy. Yes. Um, and it's all told from the standpoint of Joe, who is the author who's sort of writing. She, she's a, uh, an author and is the uh, Louisa May Alcott insert character, and she's writing kind of about her own family history and stuff. Um, it's kind of a, a movie without a plot in a way, but also is delightful and wonderful and just so great. Laura Dern is their mother and she's incredible. Uh, Chris Cooper is Laura is Laurie's father and he's great. Um, it's about the trials and travails of, you know, the sisters and their friends. So um, this is also my first Little Women. You, I you had never have... read it. Nope. Hmm. Um, I also found this movie delightful. Um, what I think is noteworthy about it, and I think very directly impacts my feelings about Rebecca, is that Greta Gerwig, I think, knew that if she wanted to adapt this movie, she needed to roll out of the gate with a compelling reason as to why 
we needed a new version yes. of Little Women. Yes. Um, and I think I think she did it. Um, she re- she mixes up the um, you know, she interweaves the timeline. So we have like kind of future or we have the present timeline um, with Joe in New York, uh, you know, kind of them as adults. And then we also have them as children. And we get to see very directly how things that happen in their childhood ends up echoing forward into their adult lives. Yes. Um, which I found to be very resonant. Well, um, and and so she kind of combined Little Women was quickly followed by a sequel uh, or a second volume titled Good Wives. And that's sort of the the future parts of the um, of the movie. Uh, the, the the blue shaded parts, because uh, Gerwig also does a great job of color tinting which era we're in. Um, but yeah, the and the the way that she ends up, um, making it a very poignant commentary on feminism and family and how like the choices that women have to make, um there are some really resonant scenes in here, which are both like, you, you, you can see how they were written into a, a novel from the 1860s, but also like when Amy is giving her speech to Lori about how um, he can only think of marriage or he doesn't have to think of marriage as a business transaction because mm-hmm. he is a wealthy man like that is a conversation that still means something today. And I just I I thought that the way that she um crafted the story and made it very dynamic and modern feeling, even though I don't think she substantively changed the dialogue or the events from the original material, uh, was really artful. Yes. Uh there was a reason this was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. I I'm certain it lost to something worthy because it was a good year for the Oscars, but also kind of sad because it probably should have won. Um, was it a good year for the Oscars? Yeah, last year was a great year, for, wasn't it? Um, it would have been this year. Jojo Rabbit, Irishman. Oh, Joker, the best movie. Uh, oh, Jojo Rabbit won for screenplay. Um, for best adapted screenplay? Yeah, adapted from Caging Skies by Christine Learnens. Oh, I think I think Little Women was a better movie I agree. than Jojo Rabbit. I agree. But. Um <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh so uh yeah, no, like this this movie brought a lot to the table. Um and also I agree with you. It it earned its keep as it were. Um especially because as you mentioned, this is a, a a source material that has been adapted 10 billion times. So when you're coming at something like that, you really do need to bring something new to it. Um uh my wife Marin has seen many other adaptations and has read it and had some quibbles with it. She likes one of the earlier adaptations partly because that's like what she grew up with. Um and while she appreciated the time jump, she wasn't as like enthralled with it as I was. But I honestly think I would have a hard time seeing another adaptation now that does it just chronologically, because that feel like the way Gerwig melded the the themes of each scene 
as she was doing the time jumps, I think made this an absolute masterpiece. Um, you'd be seeing something from the, the past and then jumping forward to the future, and it would either mirror or resonate or be in direct dialogue with it. And being able to, to structure the movie like that is just truly incredible. Um, also, apparently, R2 uh, overriding things is play with chronology. <laughs> that's that's well, my yeah, takeaway from this episode. I I tend to think that that is a way to that is a way to revitalize a story that's been told before. Yes. Like if we already know if we already know how the story goes, then I need to know I need your read I need the way that you tell it to tell me something new about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the ways you can do that is by turning it into more of a braided narrative where you can show or make other parallels between events. Like, like, like you said, you can show parallels between events in a more direct way. Um, and I think that by doing that, you can also cause different things to resonate. Yes. And you and... can draw attention to different things. And it should be noted that playing with chronology is not a, a salve it's not a catch-all it can be done poorly um oh for sure yeah but but in in this adaptation it was done masterfully i will say that i didn't know who bob odenkirk was so <laughs> everybody that i was talking to about this was like and this was so distracting and i was like i i mean it was kind of dumb when he called them his little women oh, but... you mean the greatest scene <laughs> in the movie <laughs> I cried. I fully cried uh -huh. when he comes in. When he comes in the um into the house and Amy throws the popcorn in the air because it's yeah. like at Christmas, right? And he's coming back from the war. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I simultaneously cried and laughed hysterically because I know who Bob Odenkirk is, and so he's hamming it up, and I'm just like, ah, great. Um, yeah, he was distracting, but in a way that I loved, not in a way that that. I disliked. Um, should we go on to our final uh, homework then, or is there anything else we should talk about sure. for Little Women? Um, I mean, I I think that that kind of covers it for me. We I could talk about how much I enjoyed this movie all the time. I don't know that I I don't know that I loved it as rapturously as you did. Hmm. Uh, but it was definitely one of the best movies I saw last year. Um. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is the classic. It's more interesting to talk about bad movies than good movies. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because all we have to say about this is it good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I will say. Going back, like I mentioned this earlier with this and, and uh, Rebecca plays with this as well. Um. This movie is color keyed so magnificently in terms of, you know, bluer colors, cooler colors mean, quote unquote, modern day, old, older Joe and warmer colors mean younger Joe. And that's that's a very intentional color choice to help the viewer understand where we are chronologically. Um, Rebecca does kind of the same thing in the sense that uh, Monte Carlo is all mustard colors and then Manderley is all blue colors. The problem is there, because it's chronological, you don't get that back and forth. You just get warm, sunlit beginning and then cool, you know, after that, which 
tells you something and, and could have been an interesting story about their romance, uh, especially if the romance hadn't worked out. Um, but because they tack on the saccharine ending and she stays with Maxim the entire time, the the warm sunlit honeymoon period and then the cool, cold um, Manderley period doesn't really... It it does something, but then by the end, it it's all fizzled out. Um, and, um, and the color and coding here never fizzles. I would argue that in Rebecca, the cinematography isn't strong enough to really draw attention to those color differences in the first place. Sure, they're they're certainly not doing what Gerwig did in this. Um. Also, we didn't even talk about how your favorite actor Emma Watson was in Little Women. Oh, because you you, you, you want to give a quick little she's... little Watson corner. Okay, so actually, I do. I do, actually, because I, <laughs> I want gonna, to talk I was going to about... cut all this, but I'm keeping it in. No, no, keep it in. Um, so she plays the oldest sister, whose name I can't remember. Uh, Beth? No, Beth no. dies. Meg. <laughs> Meg. Um, and I think that... So first of all, she has the weakest material. Like, let us just put that out there. Well, and she, she's, and... she's always going to have the weakest material because she's the one who does what is expected of her basically but see that's what i want to take issue with because one of the things that i think and your mileage on the on her success of this may vary but one of the things that i appreciated about the way that greta gerwig was telling meg's story is that it did not feel to me like she was saying that meg made any less like that meg's choices were not less valid because they were more in line with societal expectations mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than Joe's were. And I am always, I'm always very firmly in the camp of feminism means choices. Like right. feminism means that I have the freedom to say, I have as much freedom to say that I want to have a full-time job and be self-supporting and do all that. I have as much of a, I have as much of, I have as much freedom to make that decision as I do to say I want to get married and have babies and be a housewife. Like those are two valid decisions. Yes. And there are things that happen to Meg that are unfortunate. I really am feel I really feel all kinds of ways about the scene where her husband kind of makes her feel guilty for buying something nice for herself. Mm -hmm. Um but also talk about money with your husband. Um, <laughs> like there's, there are a lot of conflicting things that happen in there, but at the end of the day, like Meg gets to choose what she wants to do too. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. At, at the end of the day, she has raised a happy family and she is happy and proud of it. Right. Um, that said, I do think that Emma Watson is the weakest actor that we have in this movie. And it is like, kind of painfully obvious uh, i she, was she not is just, I, she is continually she is overshadowed by all of her sisters in every scene i don't uh i i i was hot or cold on beth um with the sole exception and the the one scene so she has two great scenes she has that scene where she's in the shop and she lets herself be convinced to buy the very nice fabric which i thought was very good she has a scene where she goes to a coming out party that Lori ends up going to, and he tries to make her feel ashamed 
for kind of buying into the whole coming out debutante thing. And Mm -hmm. she's just like, she rightfully, I hope, makes him feel like trash for trying to make her feel guilty about it. And I thought that that scene was played very well. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, I I really felt that every single other (laughs) character in this movie is more convincing than Emma Watson. Fair, and I I think part of that is just the, you know, like like Louisa May Alcott is like writing basically her sisters and and herself, right? And so it's like Beth is the angel who dies. Spoiler, and I'm like, and and to me she was kind of the weakest one, but that might have been just because I going in I knew that was what she was, and then Amy, my understanding is that a lot of fans like her the least because she's sort of she's the one who gets Laurie, and a lot of people are like, oh no, should have been for Joe. Um, but obviously you got Thorne's... Sorry, Joe's a, sorry, Joe's a lesbian. <laughs> oh yeah, 100, in, in this, especially in this version of the movie, 100%. Um, <laughs> uh, but also like, you know, you got Florence Pugh, so like she's doing a fantastic job. Uh, but also she's a, like, Beth is a one-note character, but it's a one-note character that you're supposed to be like, ah, uh, Beth. Uh, and then like Amy is a complex character because she's an antagonist in, in, not not really but like she can be read that way and like she's clearly the foil to joe there's the most tension between those two meg being i think she's the oldest uh certainly acts like it um yes is is sort of the least drawn of the four so i think that like i don't know i i thought that watson did a great job at playing that sort of like oldest sister above the fray just gonna do her own thing in life and it you know saddled with these artistic sisters who don't want to go get married and have families and just will stoically sort of plot along and, and do the best she can. Um, but, but I mean, obviously like both, uh, Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh are incredible actors. So. Well, and I thought that the actress who plays Beth, I thought she did a fine job. I mean, she basically has to show up and be angelic and then die. Right. Um, but I also thought that she had to be a little bit funny, which I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, and her name I is Eliza that, Scanlon, by the way. Yeah, I thought that Greta Gerwig played the scene where she enters the plague house really, really well. Yes, that was a great even, scene. Like the way that she shoots that as soon as Beth goes into that house, you're like, oh, she's dead. Mm-hmm. And I think she does. A, I think she plays a little bit on the fact that we as a culture know that Beth dies. I, I I was thinking that, like, me, a person who has consumed zero little women, walked into that movie knowing that Beth was going to die. So, right. and I, I think so Gerwig took that in as as red and used that. Yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't beat that horn too much. It's just like, the the framing of the shot is like, oh, she's dead as soon as she opens that door. Yeah, yeah. Well, spe- uh, so speaking we of to- dead people. Yes, we are going to move on real quick to our third and final piece of homework. Um, The 2020 Netflix original series, The Haunting of Bly Manor. Uh, This is a Mike Flanagan created pseudo sequel to The Haunting of Hill House, which came out two years ago, I believe. Uh, The Haunting of Bly Manor stars Victoria Pedretti as Danny Clayton, Oliver Jackson Cohen as Peter Quint, Amelia Eve as Jamie. Tania Miller as Mrs. Gross, Rahul Kohli as Owen, Tahira Sheriff as Rebecca Jessel, 
uh, Amelia Base Amelia B. Smith as Flora and Henry and um, Benjamin Evan Ainsworth as Miles. Can I just tell you how distracting it was to watch a spooky ghost mansion movie uh, with a character named Rebecca in it? Uh, mere mere days <laughs> after watching Rebecca. <laughs> I mean, that is fully not an accident. Is is the character Rebecca it's, not it's, from it's, the book? Well, in the so okay so. Back up just a moment. Yes. The Haunting of Bly Manor is very, very loosely based off of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James and also um, some other pieces of Henry James literature. It is about Danny, who go, who is an American woman who goes to be a governess at Bly Manor to Flora and Miles. And while she is there and getting involved and getting to be friends with the other uh, caretakers of the house... Uh, comes to realize that there is something extremely haunted happening. Um, Bly Manor is haunted by a handful of ghosts that cause varying amounts of trouble, uh, two of whom we find... Well, I'm... Spoilers for Bly Manor, I guess. Yeah. Um, Two of whom we find out are the former governess rebecca jessel and peter quint who used to work for flora and miles's uncle and who everyone thinks stole a bunch of money and ran off and actually got killed by one of the ghosts in the house rebecca jessel is so the the nanny character in the original turn of the screw is um nameless and the former governess is just miss jessel she doesn't get a first name. Hmm. So Mike Flanagan giving her the first name Rebecca is absolutely an homage to. Yeah, I did not realize that. So, yes, that makes total sense. Yeah, the whole theming of this show is toxicity is how love can be both a toxic and an empowering force and drawing a par- drawing parallels between being haunted literally and also being haunted figuratively by feelings there's also a lot of the haunting of the past uh like your own past haunting you being made manifest etc etc yeah so this one is our our least straightforward adaptation um it does pull in quite a few of henry james's other works just in terms of character names themes story beats um, etc. Uh, it is set in the 80s, so it is a modern rendition of this story. Uh, and The Turn of the Screw is only like 120 pages, mm-hmm. so it's also drawn out by these different themes. And in a way, it feels like it. Um, in the middle of this show, there's like a three-episode sequence all kind of set around the same event. Like, they're all sitting around a bonfire drinking. Um and that is our chance to go into flashback territory and, and learn more of the history and the flashbacks of various main characters. But that that three-episode arc, I, I enjoyed a lot, but it did make me think, like, you're working on some thin source material, so you're using this time to investigate the characters more fully, which is great. Um, but it kind of shows that we're not rushing through a bunch of plot when you can spend three episodes on the same bonfire. So how far into this show are you? Um, because so, I don't want to 
unintentionally spoil anything so uh yeah that's a good point i there are nine episodes and i have seen through episode seven so i only have episode eight and nine to go um okay so you have not watched the black and white episode yet oh no and and looking at the wiki it says centuries ago so i'm guessing that's the black and white episode yeah so they so that's the next episode for me yeah it is my sister and I disagree on this. I thought it was a fantastic episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also, it explains, it explains what's going on in the house through, by making another Henry James story, the backstory to this Henry James story, which I thought was kind of hilarious. Interesting. I only know the turning of the screw in terms of Henry James. So that might be a, a, as it tells the story to me, I'll just be like, huh okay and not get the reference well just i mean all all that kind of matters is that it is its own miniature adaptation that they are using sure in service of this larger adaptation sure totally um Um, i i super love and also called the fact that older ghosts don't have faces because they're kind of being forgotten or at least that's what i assume is happening and i think that's a super cool idea and i want more media like that yeah, the, the other thing that this show is kind of talking about is how getting getting stuck in an obsession, which mm-hmm. I, I would argue is kind of what's happening with the ghosts, is that they get they are ghosts by virtue of being stuck in these uh, in these ruts or loops in the house. Being stuck in an obsession makes you forget who you are. Mm, mm-hmm. both, both literally with the ghosts and also figuratively because i think that that is what happens tragically to rebecca is she gets very stuck in her obsession with peter um which leads to her death and destroys her because like she she forgets who she is within her obsession with this man yeah uh i i have to bring this up because you will appreciate it um in the episode where we find out peter's backstory um i i very much appreciated that because i like the like he is obviously the villain in a way of the show um but the backstory his backstory episode i appreciate that he's given a fleshed out backstory he could be a very simple two-dimensional character but instead he's given a lot of depth and like empathy and understanding uh and yet, at the end of the day, to quote your favorite, your favorite uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine line, <laughs> yes. "Cool motive, cool. still, Sorry. still ghost possession, Silver. then drowning." <laughs> oh, that was so heartbreaking. Very, very sad. But um, I don't know. I felt, I felt kind of resentful that the show, and I, I would be interested to hear if you agree with if I am being overly emotional, or if you think that this is a valid take. I did not appreciate the show trying to make me feel bad for Peter Quint. Um, I I didn't feel bad for him so much as I appreciated that he was given depth, which made him a more interesting character. It's like, yeah, yo, that sucks. Um, Also, I know that it harkens back to the original implications of the turning of the screw, where it's like, is it a ghost possession or is it child molestation or whatever 
Um, yeah, the original. It is. I think it is important to note that in the original material, it it is uninten- It is intentionally um, inconclusive. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. About whether these are real ghosts or not, and the show is not. Right. Yes. Like, the- these are. These are real ghosts. Right. And also my uh, Wikipediaing of the subject tells me that Victorian era ghost stories and stories like this, especially were like, is it a ghost or was it, you know, again, like, <clears throat> was Peter Quint a ghost possessing Miles's body or was Peter Quint a groundskeeper who was molesting Miles? Like, that's sort of what the Victorians were taking out of it. Um, I, I'm very glad they dropped that uh angle entirely from the 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 peter miles relationship and just made him a straight-up ghost but i did kind of like that they sort of snuck that into peter's background to make you you know again he's 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 both more sympathetic but also this was after six episodes of Misha shouting at the screen he's gaslighting you get away from him um i kind of i kind of wondered if they were substituting if they were if they were trying to substitute um Uh, archetype for depth hmm. yeah. but that could also just be because i really really hated peter Quinn. i mean like, like i i hate i i really hated him and even after seeing his backstory episode again it's like yeah cool story still ghost possession followed by drowning murder followed by additional murders um so i i just like that he wasn't a one note villainous character he was a character it's like oh he wants this money to pay off his mom so that she doesn't tell him where his dad is or she doesn't tell his dad where he is because his mom is terrible it's like that's that's better character depth than i want some money yeah and like you know it, it makes him it's better character depth and i'm still not like you know agreeing with him or sympathizing with him yeah, and I guess I'm on the fence over whether or not the show wanted us to. Mm, fair. I would hazard that the show did want us to. I don't appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, he, he seems like he's being treated in a... a more friendly fashion than I was giving him credit for, because even after his backstory, I was still shouting at the screen, he's gaslighting you, get away from him. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, after you watch the next couple episodes, let me know how you feel. My feeling, so as compared to Hill House, which was its predecessor and which I loved very, very much, mm-hmm. um, I thought the highs of Hill House were higher, um, but that the lows were lower and that Bly Manor was more consistently good overall. Mm. Um, I do not think that anything in Bly Manor comes close to the perfection of Two Storms. Is Two Storms the one where we learn that she's been haunting herself? Yes. yes no, that... no, 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 oh. no, no. It's the, it's the one that is the continuous tracking shot oh. that goes that goes between the two different timelines without yes. breaking. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think by then we know that Nell is haunting herself. Well, um, I, I would just say the episode where we learned that Nell is haunting herself is also up there in my mind is like one of the best episodes yes. of Hill House. Yeah, that was also very good. Because, yeah, that's the episode where spoilers for Hill House. That's the episode where Nell dies and two storms is her funeral. 
Hmm. Yes. So I think they may yes. have been like next to each other. I think you're right. Um, I, I would say that the episode where we learned that Hannah is dead approached the episode where we learned that Nell is haunting herself. Um, that was actually, that was a really interesting episode because it's a similar kind of reveal, but I thought that the impact ends up being very different. <laughs> so, so like it's a similar it's a similar kind of episode that ends up not doing the same thing at all i i, I agree and i'm laughing because um i i was really enjoying that episode because every time i sort of thought i knew what was going on something changed and it deepened my understanding of it in a way that i really enjoyed like i enjoyed getting my feet under me and then having the rug pulled out a little bit and then having to reorient um that being said this uh, I, i've been watching this with marin the entire time um and she has been shipping hannah and owen so hard that when she learned that hannah was dead she she was so <laughs> distraught that it Yes. Uh, it was a very different take on the end of that episode than I would have gotten from watching it myself. Well, I mean, she's shipping them because they're in love. I mean, also because they're very <laughs> lovely together. But like she from from the get go, from seeing one of them together, she's like, oh, they're so lovely together. So, yes. Is she enjoying it? Um, She is. But it's also one of those shows where it's like. One reason we haven't finished is because it's like, we'll watch one episode and then she's like, huh, that was a lot. Need to put on <laughs> grand design and, and cool down from it. <laughs> uh, yeah, gr grand design being the architecture version of Great British Breaking Show. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I urged her to watch it because I thought she I thought there was a lot in it that she would appreciate. Yeah, she's certainly enjoying it while also not at all enjoying uh, Ghosts Without Faces and... <laughs> Because they're upsetting. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, anything else that we want to comment? So I guess my our big kind of overall discussion question, which we've kind of touched on, but if we want to make any final claims, why do Bly Manor and Little Women work in a way that Rebecca doesn't? So I think part of it is that they're both very willing to be creative or take liberties with their source material. Rebecca is such a straight adaptation that it doesn't bring anything new to the table other than color and actors and, and all the rest of it. Um, Gerwig spent a lot of time cracking little women to make a, a script that is bringing something new to the table. And then she, you know, followed it up by directing it to, to follow up on that script. Um, as you pointed out, uh, Bly Manor is a loose adaptation uh, and is really more following in sort of the ethos of Hill House, um, just with the, the uh, I guess, the skin of, of Turning of the Screw or maybe like the skeleton of Turning of the Screw and the skin of Hill House. I'm not sure which way that goes, but um, we're sort of blending these things together. So um, using the original source material as a launching point but then to bring something new to the table is critical. And I think that is what Rebecca was lacking. Yeah, if I had to kind of characterize it, I think that I would say Little Women and Bly Manor have something to say. Mm -hmm. And Rebecca doesn't. Like, Rebecca might, like, somewhere in that script, there might have been intention or themes 
but I don't ever think it commits hard enough to actually stand on them. Whereas like little women has an agenda, like little women has stuff to do. And so does Bly Manor. Yeah. And it's using, it's using those stories in a way that is familiar, but also in a way that communicates a very specific intention. Well, I think the the biggest knock on Rebecca is sort of my review on it, which is that I watched it and then I shrugged and then I immediately forgot 90% of it. Um, yes. Because it like it, I, I consumed it and then I said, okay. And I put it on my, um, uh, my letterboxed and then I forgot I saw it. And then I went on and, and watched something else. Whereas, uh, Little Women I'm still raving about and Bly Manor I'm currently obviously still watching but there are moments and sequences and ideas in it that are very innovative and that I'm still thinking about a few days after having seen it. Well, and I am very fond of saying that I don't mind it when a story that I enjoy gets adapted or a movie gets remade. Mm-hmm. Like remakes and adaptations in and of this in themselves don't bother me. 100%. But I but I want you, if you're going to retell a story that we have already seen, why? Like, what is your intention? What are you trying to say? What are you, how are you doing this in a new way that kind of justifies the existence of your adaptation? Especially something like Rebecca, where the source material was already adapted by literally Alfred Hitchcock. Um and and that ad- adaptation is very close to the source material. So if you're going to come back and say, I'm not doing Hitchcock's Rebecca, I'm doing a new adaptation of the source material, and then you do your own version, which is like the same very close adaptation of the source material with almost nothing else going on. Yeah, like I- I've said before in this episode, what are we doing here? Seems like a good place to end. Oh, yeah, I was about to say. So on our next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So next time in two weeks, we are going to be coming back together to talk about non-European genre fiction. We're going to be going outside of our outside of our Lord of the Rings. When when, when you say genre fiction, what do you mean by that? I mean, fantasy. I mean, sci fi. I mean, horror. I mean, um, things that are outside of like literary fiction. Cool. Specifically for our episode, we are going to be looking at a fantasy and a sci-fi novel. Um, for the fantasy, uh, I have se- we have selected um, the. Do you know when Chakraborty wrote? Oh, great question. Um, it's... The book is right next to me, so can I be quicker than you wikiing it? Two thousand seventeen. The 2017 novel uh, City of Brass by S.A. Chakraborty. And, um... Uh, Three-Body Problem is weird because it was written, I think, in 06. And then translated yeah, the two, in 2012 or something. Yeah, so the 2006 uh, novel, The Three-Body Problem, which was originally written and published in China by... Um, Shishin. Shishin Lu. Shishin Lu. Uh, and translated and released in the U.S. in 2014. So we've got a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of sci-fi, um, all 
kind of going outside of our familiar European based uh, genre comfort world. Um, but until then, if you have questions, comments, concerns, uh, ideas for the show, just want to give us a follow on the social needs, you can follow us at all the places at DYDYH Podcast. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Did You Do Your Homework? Uh, and you can listen to our sister show, Love Ya, which I release on the same feed on Opposing Wednesdays with Pete's wife, Marin, where we talk about alternating adult rom-coms and teen cinema. Our last episode was about the 2009 Ricky Gervais film Ghost Town, <laughs> which I uh, felt some kind of way about. It was a fun episode because you both hated it, and that's always an interesting episode. We also get very, very deeply invested in defining what makes a romantic comedy. I, I low-key want you to have a episode only about that, but I kind of feel like you've covered all the bases in that pa- in that episode. Uh also, let us just say that let us just say we had to ultimately agree to disagree <laughs> uh martin and i have also danced that dance before but you actually have like you know uh sources to back up your claims where i'm just like spitting wildly into the wind because rom-com is not my <laughs> genre of knowledge so um and our next episode is the 2020 netflix original enola holmes so we we have fun over there uh, if you would like to follow me personally, I'm at all the places at Magical Martha, uh, including a tiny letter newsletter that I was updating about every other day and then ground to a halt because I have trouble committing to stuff. Um, I have two issues left in my 100 Scariest Movie Moments from 2010 until now, um, which, again, haven't published yet because I'm a human failure. You got to drop that last one before Thanksgiving. Then you'll be okay. If you okay. drop it after no, Thanksgiving, I... you have to call it A Nightmare Before Christmas. I Th- hate that. Thanksgiving is the cutoff. Right. So therefore, publish it before Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. That's no, that's I'm your gonna... incentive. I'm shooting to finish that. I'm shooting to finish those this week. So now is the perfect time to uh, go back and check out the beginning of my list. Oh, there we go. Uh Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm tweeting politics and pop culture um you know the abyss it's a little bit brighter but still a whirling sucking maw of things so uh occasionally there are puppies as well i made it i made twitter stop sending me notifications on my phone and it was the best decision i've ever made oh yeah i never had it send notifications to my phone because otherwise i would be um like you know how in The Last Crusade, when the dude chooses poorly and becomes a skeleton person, that's what I would yes. look like if Twitter was sending notifications to my phone. <laughs> Fair. Um, but that is going to do it for us. We will see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, and until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed.